Hey, mate, 40 here. So I'm only live streaming tonight instead of kicking back, watching the football with the sound off, listening to Michael Wolf's biography of Rupert Murdoch on Audible and enjoying some high-quality football. But I'm ticked off because I was trying to help somebody out today, and I did what he asked, but much of what he asked me to do, he doesn't recollect uh, correctly, and it's just so frustrating. Like, I, I followed directions. I was trying to help some dude out and uh it did not go well bloody hell so so i wanted to come online and i just want to yell at somebody I, you notice a lot of live streamers right they they, they seem to get uh, a great deal of power they get to you know vent a lot of uh, frustrations in their life by just yelling at somebody and uh, chris cavanaugh made this point rather profoundly on decoding the gurus. I've said this many times. We're going to do like some of the streamers, Destiny, Hasanabi, these type of people, because it's an interesting ecosystem. And it's uh, an ecosystem which is rife with parasocial manipulations and, and egomaniacs running wild. So it's it's a good location for secular gurus. But uh, yeah, it, the result is that I ended up watching these, they're called drama channels, Matt. Like they're basically like, they're YouTube channels which exist to, to talk about YouTube drama, like between creators, this kind of thing. Oh, okay. And yeah, yeah. Uh, not the worst of them, not like not like the ones that are completely like, uh, what's the equivalent in the old media? Like, um, what do you call that TV or that channel is just all about celebrities? Like, who, what are you wearing on the red carpet? And, yeah. you know, ETV or something like that? Yeah. Like I Paris Hilton? Something called like TZ or something? Or... Oh, TMZ. Yeah, TMZ. TMZ. Yeah. yeah. So there's like YouTube channels like that. The channels that I saw are not that bad, but they're kind of like, here is some bad creator. Look at all the bad things he does. It looks kind of familiar. It's always for them. Uh, yeah, so I was just watching videos of that, Matt, and it, just those ecosystems, those personalities, they're, they're egomaniacs. And the way that they're interacting with their audience, like, you know, they sit on the stream and they're, they're kind of drinking their coffee or whatever, like what I'm going to do in a minute. But then they, when somebody says something they don't like, it depends on the creator, but they get like, what? You fucking idiot. You just, you know, you stupid blah, blah, blah. And they're just, you know, blah, 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 and getting all animated. And that's part of the appeal. But like, obviously, the other person is generally not there, right? They're just like a disembodied yeah. tech. So you just, it's like a really one-sided, it's like a guru telling his followers off for daring to, you know, cross yeah. judgment. And I get yeah. really Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now that's interesting, it's, isn't it? So like they've written a little text or a comment and then they get to Like this? And get, get it would be like, yeah. you know Except... what I'm saying? Hey, what? Mooncat? What the fuck? Shut up, my Kickman. Like, you're an idiot. You just want to genocide the world, you stupid mark. Right? It's like that. And mm. then, the, but obviously they have, you know, huge chats, so just like a kind of interacting with a wall of text. But it, I... As I mentioned to you, I previously saw Stefan Molyneux um, interactions with his audience, and it was very mm. similar, very, very similar mm. dynamic. He would do call-in shows where people would call him in and ask for advice. And as soon as they said something he didn't like, he'd be like, mm. yeah, that's why you're in this situation. This is why, you know, blah, blah, blah. And it, it... Yeah, but people only abuse you really to the extent that you sign off on it, right? You generally sign off when other people lie to you and abuse you because you've given out that energy that you can be abused, that you can be taken advantage of, that you you know, want to be deceived so that you can live in your delusions. Not 100%. I'm just saying that we play a significant role in how other people interact with us. So I got taken for hundreds, even thousands of dollars of scams when I was trying to make my way in Hollywood, checking out uh, the acting world in 1994, 95, because those people met my needs to feel like I could be a star. Yes, these are my real teeth. I've never had braces. they never had uh, fake teeth. These are just my, my real fair dinkum teeth. But I, I wear this retainer that brings my lower jaw forward. But in the process, it has widened the, the teeth 
it, and my lower my lower mandible, I think that's called. So I have I have gaps now in my lower teeth, but I I keep wearing this re retainer at night because it brings the lower jaw forward, and that's supposed to help open up the nasal passages or stuff like that. But yeah, I get you know more likely to get teeth stuck in, and the the, the bottom row is not as uh, clean and straight and compact as it was before I started in with this uh, particular retainer that just brings my my lower jaw forward. But I, I identify with this, right? I, I had one girlfriend who I yelled at. To the best of my knowledge, there's only ever been one girlfriend who I yelled at. But there was something about the dynamic of our relationship that kind of led me to yell at her. I'm not proud of that. I'm embarrassed about it. But I would yell at her when we were driving down the freeway. But she played a role in that, and I played a big role in that. And if people yell at you, abuse you, and lie to you on a regular basis, there's probably something that you're doing. And like, it's a very dangerous thing to help somebody. All right, because the need to be rescued and the need to rescue usually come out of the same sick place. Now, there's healthy helping of people and there's unhealthy. Right? I remember I ran into this Holocaust survivor on a walk and he talked to me about how lonely he was and how you know, it would just make his life if I would come visit him in the evening. So I decided to come visit him in the evenings. All he wanted to do was to be left alone to watch Fox News. Right? He, he wanted no interactions. I, I, you know, I visited him. One, two, three evenings, and he made it clear he was not interested in my company. So uh, people are complicated. Some people will you know, call you up and tell you about their suicidal ideation. They will cry, cry, cry a river to you on the phone if you allow that. I, I don't think, generally speaking, it's a healthy thing to subsidize that, that sort of behavior. And uh, this can happen with the uh, live streamers, too. You can develop a relationship with a live streamer where they yell at you and Really, that's that's in in part on on you. It just feels really, it just feels very um like traditional guru dynamics, you know, like culty. Does it actually help bringing my lower jaw forward to open up my nasal passages so I sleep better? I'm not sure. I'm not sure. But uh, do you remember when I used to do a lot of live streams with Dennis Dale? He's the only person, to the best of my knowledge, that I frequently yelled at. So there, there had to have been something about the dynamic between Dennis Dale and myself that I would speak to him in a more harsh tone than I would, I think, more than any other regular on my show. So there's something about that relationship, that long, long, long uh, dead relationship with Dennis Dale that uh, often brought out, you know, really not nice part of myself. Yeah, Dennis would have a reflex of saying, I'm sorry. And I think the more Dennis said, I'm sorry, the more I yelled at him. And then the first time Ricardo called in, it was to say, Dennis, you got to stop saying I'm sorry. And Dennis, Ricardo didn't say this, but if you keep saying I'm sorry, and if you keep like taking unnecessary blame on yourself, then people will just keep blaming you and yell at you, right? So on the one hand, it sounds like a great thing to do is like take responsibility. Oh, that's all my fault. I'm sorry. That's totally my fault. But you can go too far with that. You can abuse that. You can, you know, go you know to to an extreme with that, and it becomes an unhealthy relationship dynamic that you're assembling with people, so that they just feel you know totally free to blame you for all sorts of things that aren't fully your fault, and to start yelling at you and disparaging you. And you played a role. I play a role in many people treating me with, with disrespect because I am maladaptively vulnerable. I like way too vulnerable. I I think I become too vulnerable to. 
I don't know, get out of, you know, complicated or demanding situations to create drama, to try to create, you know, undue intimacy and intensity in my relations, just try to, you know, make a shortcut to have good relations with people, to wear my heart on the sleeve. And in the process, I am just way too vulnerable. And then people frequently treat me with disgust or just disrespect. And I am inviting that. All right. I've got this habit of being overly vulnerable and then I don't like the results of that. Leadership. Yeah. Um, like you, you single people out for bastardization, right? It's yeah. Kind of, it's kind of, it is like a, a very old fashioned um, social control technique where if there's got a big group of people, you, the, the big boss person will pick someone out and, and yeah, yeah. bastardize them essentially. And everyone else kind of observes and kind of um, gets a bit of a thrill from, from. Right. If people are picking you out to yell at, there's a good chance that you played a significant role. When I have told my friends how various employers or employers at the time were treating me. Most of my friends who are high functioning said, I would not put out with that for 30 seconds. But I put out the vibe that I could be abused because I was used to that because I was bounced off the walls growing up. You know, I was smacked around. I was used to, to being abused. So even into my 50s, I, I, being abused by people in authority felt normal, natural, felt like I was at home when someone was berating me, deriding me, cutting me down for, for no good purpose. You know, just treating me terribly, that felt like our home, right? We, we learn certain patterns, certain habits, certain things that feel comfortable to us. And I learned in my childhood that being abused, being smacked around verbally and physically, that felt like home to me. I, I remember I used to do one, one of these podcast shows 20 years ago, and my co-host James DeGiorgio said, you'd, make a good, you'd, make, you'd be a battered husband. You'd just be a classic battered husband, and all you'd do is, would be whine and complain about it. And uh, various pornographers who, who specialize in sadomasochism were, were able to very quickly point out that I had a fetish for being you know, verbally hurt. I had a fetish for basically encouraging people to treat me with disrespect. And consciously, no, you know, I hate being treated with disrespect. I hate being hurt, but I would consistently act and invite that sort of behavior. Not being the one being yeah, bastardized. Like, it's, yeah. Scott Adams did it, right? We've heard it, Scott Adams doing that in some of his content. But, it, but the thing is, lots of these people are doing that in there. And their politics are all over the map. Like Hassan Avi is like a leftist, right? And the, the, it's, so it's, this is actually useful for us because we've been saying, you know, it would be good to look at uh, people from the left side of the spectrum. And the problem is most of the IDW types, they almost all identify as centrists or, or left-leaning people, but like they're not, they're not really, right? But there are left-leaning people doing the parasocial exploitative stuff, but I think a lot of them hang out on YouTube and Twitch. So yeah, we, we might find them there. Uh, so yeah, the more, anyway. The more, I, the more I hear about this internet thing, Chris, the less I care for it. <laughs> yeah, it's a bad idea. <laughs> I also saw a message. You know that thing that went viral a while back where you have the TikTokers or whatever, the TikTokers and the Twitches where they're, they're kind of doing reactions when people pay like money. They're saying, yum, yum, like ice cream yeah, or whatever, yeah. right? Yum, yum. Uh, but yes. what somebody pointed out is like, if you don't watch the stream, quite for a large part of that stream, they're doing the um, like, just waiting <laughs> like they're because they're not being paid money all the time right so they a lot of it they just have like a you know like npc resting face movement which they're just doing it fucking right you can throw down super chats i'm rumble right now i'm on rumble backslash luke ford and uh throw down a super chat i'll say yum 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 so they, <laughs> until they get a reaction then they you know it's like somebody putting the money into the machine and the thing yeah. comes to life but you're like but you're not a NPC, right? You're not a computer. <laughs> you're, you're a human being. <laughs> What's so happening? It's, so it's weird, isn't it? It's, it's like pure objectification, right? Like there isn't necessarily a, a sexual component because people usually use that Except word in relation to that. Attractive. 
they, they are very attractive, right? Ones, but yeah. but I think the key, th I think if it is like that, it is abstracted away to such a weird degree that who knows what it's what it's tickling. But it's it's clearly objectification, right? The person is acting like a robot, like an anime character, and mm -hmm. they're responding just like if you press a button, you put the coin in the slot. That's just so odd. Yeah, <laughs> it's all right. So the the chat says, you know, I whack off. This is a woman saying i whack off to the idea of my boyfriend cheating on me in real life i would never you know in real life get get off on that so yeah we all have a dark side and i was just talking to a sponsee about this a, a few minutes ago all that our self-destructive maladaptive behaviors like me being overly vulnerable that's meeting a real need right the reason that we are maladaptively doing things is because we are not meeting our needs through our regular life so why am I going around making myself like way too vulnerable for my own good? Because in all likelihood, I'm not meeting sufficiently my needs for intimacy, uh, intense connection with other people through healthy ways. So I'm using unhealthy ways to try to meet those needs. I mean, uh, other blokes, they're not getting their intimacy needs and their needs for like intense closeness with people. So they're, you know, going to glory holes or bathhouses or, you know, hiring prostitutes or looking at pornography or getting high, or doing drugs, right? So we have legitimate needs. If we don't meet our le needs legitimately in healthy ways, like through our, say, 12-step recovery program, or through our religion, through our, through our yoga, through our spiritual practices, right? We're going to meet them in a sick way. So I have a need for drama. Uh, and so I, I think I, I make myself unnecessarily vulnerable. I try to create inappropriately intense relationships in, in many contexts. I like to you know, play, play a lot of games with uh, some, some people in my life because I, I like to feed you know, my, my need for, you know, for, for drama. But there are healthy ways to feed my need for drama, such as by doing these informative, provocative, enthralling, entertaining uh, live streams. That's like a healthier way for me to meet my need for drama. I, I have a great need for freedom. And so I have consistently self-sabotaged uh, relationships uh, work situations, communal, communal situations, so that I could feel free because all human inter interactions are going to get messy. Like all human interactions are going to touch on parts of you that feel awkward and that you don't want to be reminded that you have these vulnerabilities. And so I have consistently in the course of my life, you know, wanted to just drop, you know, flames and petrol and gasoline and cigarettes and, and lighters and just blow things up so that I could feel free again because I was feeling hemmed in, uh, captured, uh, you know, parts of me were feeling very awkward because of some, you know, ongoing interaction I had, such as a job or a friendship or a communal relationship. So instead, I can healthfully create that feeling of freedom by saving money, by overcoming my various emotional addictions, by setting aside time for myself and for doing what I want, uh, getting clear about what's important to me and pursuing those goals. Okay, so yeah, if we if we don't meet our needs through healthy ways, we're going to meet them through very sick, you know, maladaptive ways. But when we find out we we're stuck in some you know self-destructive pattern, we have to ask like, what legitimate, what real needs is this meeting? How is this seemingly self-destructive, maladaptive trait, character trait, behavior, habit, pattern? How is that serving me? Then how is it hurting me? How would I benefit from being in the opposite of it? After like hipster thing. In, in London, before like it, it had kind of emerged from what it is. So it's Charlie Brooker, like uh, doing a very dark comedy about like yeah, a guy dealing with like you know basically vice and magazines like that, and uh, just noticing how like superficial and stupid everything is. Very good. Only six episodes I think ever made, but very good. What's it, what's it called again? Tell me the, tell me the Nathan Barley. Nathan Barley is in Barley. Barley, Barley, like the way he the. Yeah. <laughs>
Yeah, uh, Barley. It's very good. If you like dark places and stuff, you'll, you'll like that. Okay. Oh yeah, yeah. Look, see, Brian is right. Um, it is true, and I was going to point this out. Like, oh yeah, 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 David Brent. And look, I'll, I'll give you a theory of comedy that helps you here, Matt. Like Basil Fawlty <laughs> and stuff. They, you know, they are in the lineage of that, right? A, a bit more yeah. commentary, but the whole point is yeah. kind of even Dad's Army and stuff like that. In, uh, you know, the kind of thing. That... Whoops! I, I pushed the pushed the wrong link. Here we go. Oh, it's Mark right. Klingman. I know I'm sounding more and more like a boomer, but it's all the story. Well, Mark, Mark Klingman is making a good point that, like, you know, you have the people in the street performers, right, who are dressed up like statues and move around yeah, when you yeah, put actually, them on the that's end. True. That's, uh, that's yeah, true. Yeah, but there's and something. People don't think there's anything creepy about the street performers acting like statues. <laughs> they're, they're, they're objectifying. <laughs> they're, themselves. Like, no, I, they're, I, they're a little bit creepy. Mine's are creepy. Yeah, there's there's something about that where it's, I guess, I guess this is it. Unfortunately, you're right, Mark, that that is probably a good Right. I have a need to perform. Right. If I don't perform on YouTube, right, I might perform in some very inappropriate places in inappropriate ways with inappropriate audiences with inappropriate levels of audience interaction with my performances good analogy that this is just the online version of that but it's just so fucking weird so weird um what do i use to groom my beard so precisely okay and i was up uh went to bed at seven and uh, got up at three thirty-seven a.m this morning i, I not sure I got this queued up right. I sure hope this is correct. Actually, hold on, because I've listened to that, and I think he knows Arabic, or he knows, you know, he definitely knows Arabic speakers. But he said, "Ah, yeah, this is, this is, this is good. This is really good." From decoding the gurus, Chris Cavanaugh, Matt Brown. Record an uh, interview with Dag Soros, the Norwegian comedian, for his podcast. I don't think it's. I get. I definitely talked about this with him. Um, but uh, and I told you about this. So you'll, and it will come up if we do the Sam Harris episode. But um. Sam was talking about people may or may not have heard this recording of a Hamas terrorist calling his family back in Gaza and kind of proudly talking uh, about yeah. all the um, yeah. people that he's killed. And um, the transcript of the conversation, uh, like one, it's very clear that the Hamas guy is very proud of killing the Israeli civilians. He's telling people, look on the phone, you can see the 10 Jewish people I killed with my own hands. I killed them. You know, this is great. It's, uh, and, but the, re the additional layer that was added onto that analysis is that the parents and the family seem happy and they're not responding in horror, right? So this is more horrific because it's somebody describing doing horrific actions, but their family are not reacting in horror. And, and this is a potential concern because it would speak to like... All right, so most people, their thinking just goes down certain tracks. They get certain stimuli and then they just, you know, inevitably go down a certain track. They don't really take the time to consider what's, what's really going on. They just seize what's immediately appealing and feeds their needs. The level of um, like... Uh, radicalization yeah, radicalized yeah, right. in the general community but yep. when sam raised this so if you look at the transcript there are various things where the parents say things like uh you know praise be Allah or something like this right and graham wood the journalist who has more specialism in this said whenever sam raised this topic with him said actually hold on because so graham wood wrote a profile of richard spencer he kind of specializes in jihadi terrorism he's a, a thoughtful thoughtful journalist Right, for the Atlantic. I've listened to that, and I think he knows Arabic, or he knows, you know, he definitely knows Arabic speakers, but he said, I actually think that, that you're misinterpreting that, because if you listen, they are using stock phrases that you hear, you know, the same way someone might say Jesus Christ, or oh my God, right, but they're not invoking praise be to the most high Jesus Christ, right, I say it, but it, it's because of the, you know, Islamic culture, just there's lots of stock phrases that reference uh, Allah, or whatever the case might be, um, and then Graham Wood says, to me, it sounds like they're reacting out of disbelief and shock, and they're kind of saying, what are you talking about? Like, you know, where are you? What's going on? Oh, and, and like, instead of it being praise be the Allah, it's like, praise, praise be the Allah, you know, like Jesus Christ, what, what are you talking, you know? And yeah. the, the mom is crying at one stage and like Sam presented that as like tears of joy. It doesn't sound like that in the, but in any case, I don't know. So when I saw the transcript online, I had the same reaction of Sam, like initially, where I was like, oh, this looks um, concerning, right? That there isn't the outreach. But then when I heard somebody who knows a bit about the topic and, and might understand the language better, raise that actually it's a misinterpretation. I thought, oh, 
I don't know. Yeah. I, yeah. No, I, I, I shouldn't pass judgment. And that is possible. But Sam, in the next episode that they released, uh, does a long segment with the same interpretation that he initially had of the call. And at the very end, he says, a Graham Wood has an alternative, but I'm not so sure about that or something. And, yeah. and, then moves on, and it's like, wow. Like, yeah. It, yeah, it just speaks to his thinking being on rails. And, you know, we're, we're dunking on Sam, but there's like a general principle to be absorbed here, right? Which is that when you've got too strong, uh, you could call it ideological, you could call it theoretical, but you've got too strong a mental framework that you're wanting to filter all the information yeah. through, then what, what you clearly do is you just ignore the disconfirming evidence that doesn't fit and, and, you, and, and you persist with a model as if all the evidence that's coming in is fitting your model perfectly. And that makes you unable to, to learn new things, basically. And it becomes kind of boring. Because yeah, one thing that Yuval uh, was emphasizing in that conversation was like, you know, there's religious extremists on the Israeli side, right? The ones who are promoting the West Bank settlement and actually a lot of Netanyahu's government, right? Like he was appealing to the far right of Israeli politics and the, the ones that um, are, are at least supporting. I think that phrase, thinking on rails, since I heard it this morning, it just hasn't left my head. I, I think it's a really useful way of understanding some very common human tendencies. ...by religious demagogues. And... But the way Sam had framed that was, you know, the kind of one side has the religious fanatics and the other yeah, side is doesn't, like, yeah, there's none yeah. of that. Just, just, and, just an ideal particular democracy. No, yeah. No and, but so the, the position, though, was just it's just more reasonable to. I'm not saying that, therefore, it's completely equivalent. Right. But it, it's more like. And uh, comment in the chat from Hasidic Bell Daphine. These guys, quoting the gurus, are the worst. I don't know why Luke likes these insufferable morons. So boring. All right. They're, they're not as exciting as a Nick Fuentes or Richard Spencer and Ethan Ralph. Uh, frequently, the truth, frequently profound truth, is not immediately exciting. It's not uh, a thrill. But I, I think that what they have to say is incredibly important here. It's complex. And there are religious extremists on both sides. And there are moderating forces on, on uh, both sides. And like that, yeah, the, 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 so basically, the black and white, like it's just jihadism. That's the only ideology that we really have an, an issue with. And, you know, yeah, again, yeah. Uh, Yuval raised the point that like plenty of people in uh, the 20th century seem to do a lot of extreme activities for secular yeah, ideologies yeah. that didn't posit an eternal afterlife, right? The millions of people died in the furtherance of those objectives. So it's not that that isn't an ideology, martyrdom and, and so on, that is a problem, but it is that it's not the only potential driver for like conflicts and, you know, Ukraine and Russia, it's not relying on... It, uh, no, a fundamentalist thing. I mean, unless you try to shoehorn, you, know, right? you know, yeah, unless you try to shoehorn nationalism into that. Yeah, no, that's right. I mean, reality is, you know, messy and complicated. And that's deeply unsatisfying, I think, to, to everybody, right? It'd be really nice. It's really nice to have a nice, simple set of heuristics, a nice, simple, like, mental key that explains every problem. Like, wouldn't it be great if, you know, everyone that we covered, Chris, they're all bloody grifters. That's what it is. They're all grifting, right? They're, they're all grifters, right? Bang. You know, they're you know, if you wanted, you know, if you wanted to, you could you pay attention to particular bits of evidence. And that could be the, the, the key that explains everything yeah. that's happening in this sphere. But unfortunately not. It's a bit more complicated. Yes, it's an element. It's just one of many. Some of it hangs together comfortably. Other things just don't really fit. Um, yeah. So, yeah. Even, even in the case of narcissism, which we often emphasize, yeah. right? like that, you, you could completely exercise that and focus on some other element. Like, like for example, the, the flows of money in the ecosystems. And I, I, that wouldn't be wrong, right? It would be giving you a partial, partial. perspective. And the same thing would apply if you completely ignore the financial incentives that are in play and, and the network dynamics. So like, it's, yeah. yeah it, I, I see that as well, actually. Sorry, we're now we keep elaborating on this point, but you see it crop up in so many different ways. Like I, like I've got a lot of friends online who fall into that kind of, you know, liberal free speech forever type attitude, right? Yeah. So, so they see, you know, you know, free speech as just this fundamental, you know, principle that is, that is so important. Okay, I enjoyed that little burst there from Decoding the Gurus, also listening to the Duran, making the point that that uh, we had a way out of this Ukraine crisis. We, we didn't have to get into this mess. Once we were into the mess, 
there was basically an agreement reached between Zelensky and Putin, but uh, the Biden administration and the Boris Johnson administration in Britain said to Zelensky, no way, you've got to get all your territory back. You can't compromise at all, even though we could have ended this war you know, shortly after it began. And so a lot of politicians like Joe Biden and the head of NATO, right, they have their egos on the line. They think it will be good for their reputation, right, for their career prospects to keep this bloody slaughter going on in Ukraine. This is from the Duran podcast. In Kiev, which, as we now know, is a complete fiction. I mean, we discussed that before. The Russians withdrew as part of a diplomatic deal, which the West sabotaged. Um, they talk about Kharkiv and Kherson region and the Kharkiv offensives being reversed and the Kherson offensive is at a standstill and the losses Ukraine suffered as a result of those were horrendous. But the realities today on the battlefronts anyway are completely different. But Stoltenberg, he won't talk about that. Annalena Baerbock won't talk about that. What she's doing instead is warning people about not being fatalistic about Ukraine. That they want, must get on still supporting Ukraine, giving Ukraine everything so that it can continue the war until it is finally destroyed. Uh, I mean, the Russians say, you know, that it's until the last Ukrainian. And that's what it's beginning to look like. Yeah. yeah, it's almost like they want to, I guess it's like destroying the scene of the crime, I guess. You know, they just, I think Stoltenberg, von der Leyen, Annalena, Zelensky, Yermak, all these people, they're so up to, up to their neck in, in so much just, just crap, you know, just nasty crap that they just, they, they decided, let's just destroy the whole thing. And, and Russia did it. Exactly. And, and blame, it all on, blame, it all, blame yeah. it all on Putin. Blame it all on the Russians. Uh, when Ukraine is destroyed, all this, you know, hundreds of thousands of people have been killed. It's all Putin's fault. And because it's all Putin's fault, we must take even more steps to insulate and protect and defend Europe from him and clamp down even more on anybody in Europe who says otherwise. So that, that, that is the agenda now. Yeah, let me just, uh, just to wrap up the video, let me read you a quote. And I want your, your thoughts, your human psychology right. uh, input. So, so much of the drive for suppressing speech online and accusing anyone who differs from the you know, ruling regime with regard to incentivizing and subsidizing Ukraine's war with Russia is, oh, we, you know, we need to restrict speech so that uh, we don't give soccer to our enemies. So we, we create this horrific situation in Ukraine and then try to restrict speech so that uh, those who are subsidizing and directing this horrific situation in Ukraine Right, they get more protection from being criticized. On this, just so we understand how these people think, and this has to do with Brexit. But you know, I, I think you'll be, I think you'll be able to relate this to Ukraine. So uh, Ursula von der Leyen, she gave an interview or made some comments about Brexit and how the UK is is now looking to, to move back into into the European Union. That's the, traje the trajectory of things. And she said, she said this. I keep telling my children, and she's talking about Brexit. I keep telling my children, you have to fix it. We goofed up. You have to fix it. So I think here too, the direction of travel, my personal opinion, is clear. I, I just read that quote. We goofed up, and I just think, you know. This is the way these people think. This is how yes. they're going to explain everything. When, when yes. it all collapses, it's just going to be like, you know. Uh, what are your thoughts on, on, on that? Just the, the psychology of these, these globalists and these, and these institutions, is, is, it, it just sickens you. But anyway, that's, that's how they see the world. Oh, yeah. I mean, the, the, that, that is exactly what they're going to do. You know, we acted out of good faith. It was a mistake. We, we made mistakes, as we did with Iraq, as we did with Libya. But we acted with the best of intentions all along. And if everything in the end turned out bad, well, it was not our fault. It was because there wasn't enough uh, uh, will and determination. People didn't give as much money as they should have done. They didn't give as much weapons as they should have done. They could have given more. Never explain how that could have happened. And of course, in the end, in this particular crisis, uh, it's absolutely not our fault. It's the fault of the horrible man in the Kremlin and these terrible people around him, Putin and his accomplices. They are the people who ruined our beautiful dream. And, you know, we, the only responsibility you take is that you made certain mistakes. You goofed. You goofed up. You still want all those hundreds of thousands of students and women to go to the battlefronts. 
That's, but that's only a mistake if they have died. It's only a mistake on your part if they, if they died. I mean, it's good that we make these programs now because um, when those excuses are made. Right. This war would not have happened if Donald Trump had been in the White House. I don't think there would have been a massive Hamas attack on Israel and therefore an Israeli invasion of Gaza if Donald Trump had been in the White House. And we've been unnecessarily provocative with China over Taiwan. We could get into an absolute mess there as well. This is the, the most seemingly competent, but really the most incompetent foreign policy administration that uh, the United States has had in 70 plus years. We have programs like this as a public record of what it was really, of what it really all amounted to. Before we finish, just wanted to say, I noticed that in Britain, and I mentioned it on my uh, program uh, for my own channel yesterday, they're now resurrecting the story that um, it was actually Putin who turned down the prospects of peace last year. That there was this mysterious deal that nobody knows anything about that was negotiated with Kozak, you know, Kozak, Putin's um, official, that he did some kind of a deal with the Ukrainians uh, and, and that Putin rejected it. There is absolutely, just to say again, there is absolutely no evidence whatsoever for that story. But it again tells you that deep down, the British know full well what they actually did in March and April of last year when they knocked away the chance Ukraine had to agree to a peace. Um, we see the same comments now being made by Aristovich. Aristovich has confirmed, has confirmed that as well, that Ukraine had a good peace deal then, and it was all thrown away. And the he, British he said very good, very, very good. favorable peace deal, yeah. he said. He actually said exactly. the Russians made a lot of concessions. Sorry, exactly. That's what he said. Exactly, exactly. So a very, very good peace deal was made last year. The British played an instrumental role in throwing it away. But they're, they're starting to get nervous that people are start, going to start pointing the fingers at them. So they're now falling back again on this fictitious story about this other deal that was supposed to what do I make about all the assassination talk uh, with regard to Donald Trump? Well, I think the Atlantic, didn't they just have something like 40 different intellectuals write essays and why it'd be a disaster to have uh, Donald Trump as the next president of the United States? So, yeah, there's uh, there, there are all these incentives being laid, just like there were incentives laid for the massive increase in violent crime we've had since George Floyd. We have all these incentives laid for an assassination of Donald Trump. I think, you know, that, that ground is, is being prepared. Okay, let's uh, get a little bit of a lighter note. This is Tim Heidecker on Joe Rogan. Look at the Joe Rogan clip. Because, again, stop, if Joe Rogan, if you want to be an expert on this, stop doing your silly show. With your Fuddruckers background. I'm a fatty, fat, fat, though. <laughs> <laughs> All right, here's Joe. For young boys in particular, there's an adverse risk associated with the vaccine. It's like yes. a two- to four-fold increase in the instances of myocarditis. Yes, but you know what? hospitalization. The, you know that there's COVID. an increased risk of myocarditis in, among that age cohort from getting COVID as well, which exceeds uh, the risk of myocarditis from the vaccine. I don't think that's true. I don't think it it's is. true. He doesn't think no, it's no, true, no. guys. it's true that there's an increased who are risk you? of myocarditis from people catching COVID that are young versus increased risk of myocarditis from the vaccine. Look at you. No, there Look, is. Pause. Listen pause. to this. <laughs> Joe He's Rogan saying so myocarditis. What? Right. I don't even know what that is. <laughs> Why should I? I just go to the Wait, doctor and, I, and the doctor tells me what to do. Right. And no, hopefully it all works out for the best. Right. There is. There's both. Well, let's look that up because I don't think that's <laughs> let's true. Look that, where are you looking it up? In the New England Journal of Medicine? But is this with children? In Grey's Anatomy? What? 
some fucking website. Yeah, we're talking about young like, this is the, They go down this... Ra- they, they're lost. They're just lost. With, with children. Because there's so much information. Well, no, we right? were talking about 15 There's so much well, information. And so poor Joe Rogan, his, his brain's just <laughs> melting with all this information. He can't dissect it. He doesn't know what he's talking about. Joe, if you want to be an expert on this subject, stop doing your daily dumb show where you talk to fucking whoever, some dick comedian who's, who's you know talking about whatever yeah <laughs> give me a something there who's ted, he talking to ted nugent ted nugent about hunting <laughs> and goggles and everything and eating meat stop your show go enroll at austin university medical <laughs> fucking university right and Can become a yeah, good, uh, good question in the chat from Elliot Blatt. Why did certain countries like Sweden and Denmark and uh, I believe the state of Queensland in Australia ban the Moderna vax citing myocarditis? Because there were studies revealing that there was a chance of some kind of myocarditis uh, reaction among a tiny, tiny number of people to the vaccine. What these countries did not take into adequate account is that the risks of myocarditis are much, much higher for people who catch COVID. So... People see a risk with doing a certain procedure and they go, oh, we should we should not have that procedure done. What they frequently don't consider is what's the risk if you don't do the procedure or you don't take the, the vaccine or if you, you know, don't engage in that activity. Yeah, everything comes with a risk. One needs to make uh, prudent choices on uh, what type of risk you want to take. This is Tim Heidecker and Bill Maher. The, what's, what, what is the part of it that that bums you out the most the part that gets me is seeing a casual bill maher where yeah he's got the the t-shirt yeah underneath the, the button-down shirt and you know it's very it, close to the steve buscemi uh, you know hey kids yeah exactly look. like he's and then that sad table with the just packed it, to the gills everything's re- ready to yeah. fall fall over but it's all and it's also just and the like clinking yeah He's like reaches over. He's so he's so, like a real compulsion to like light things and, to po- keep and ice. Moving, yeah, he'll yeah. Like, it, he'll be talking to you while yeah, doing. Yeah. Well, he'll whole... what he'll do is he'll ask a question. Mm-hmm. Let me see if uh, I can do it here. Yeah. So so what w- what have you been up to this summer? Well, you know, I've really been no, like... <laughs> like right as soon as the, as soon as the it's immediate. Yeah. Like you he should do it while still. he's talking. Yeah. You do it when you're exactly. So no. the little things like that are amazing. And then just his his general point of view is mm-hmm. just turned into grumpy man, get yeah. off my lawn. Yeah. Uh, and his un, he's not interested in what the other person has to say. No, he's, and he's combative. He's he's fighting. He's 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 closed shop in yeah. his head. Yeah. Everything I've come up with is the answer. Yes. The, the new rule has been no room stone. Yeah. No room for anything else. And I'm going to be weirdly petulant about yeah. it that you might dare to not see it the way I see it. Yeah. And then the guests don't seem to know that, like, none of the guests have watched the show. They might none now, they yeah. start have maybe yeah. caught up. But yeah. in the first bunch, you could feel that, that they were not expecting to be sabotaged yeah. like this. Where they're that, just they're like pounced on. They're like, wait, this is what this is? Yeah. <laughs> I thought this was the HBO thing. Yeah. Like, they're checking the address, they're driving. Like, yeah, I'm going to do Bill Maher's show. Yeah. And then suddenly yeah, they're, they're going up a hill. A, they're like, going up turn like a, right. Yeah. Well, hey, and then going to CBS Television yeah. City or yeah, like exactly. the studio. They'll be like in the hills. They'll be just like, 
<laughs> two tenths of a mile before I'm here. Where am I going? This has to be wrong. Okay, some uh, interesting comments in the chat. Uh, here we go. Hasidic Bell Delphine. No one watches Luke Ford anymore because he hates his viewers and thinks that people like Douglas Murray, Murray are shallow. There's a lot of truth to that. I am not you know, going to do a show uh, that uh, just panders to people's you know, dumb uh, prejudices. I'm not going to do a show where I'm just telling you that you know, you're so great and your favorite uh, right-wing intellectuals are just amazing if they're not. And I'm not going to say that, uh, you know, the, the, the deep state is, you know, responsible for, you know, most of the problems in our lives and, and the elite are trying to destroy Western civilization. I'm not going to give you that, that crap. You've got hundreds of right-wing shows that would just dish out the crap, all right? You want to be lied to, all right? You want to go on a live stream so that you can have, you know, some intellectual masturbation where just, you know, all your knee-jerk 100 IQ prejudices are reinforced. There, there are a lot of other shows that are much better for that than, than this show, right? We go deep here. Is there really inconclusive evidence that the vax actually prevented? Is there really conclusive evidence that the vax prevented COVID? Well, no one's smart. There, there are no scientific uh, studies, to the best of my knowledge, of any prestige arguing that the vax prevents COVID. What they argue is that it reduces the severity of COVID and reduces the transmission of COVID and uh, reduces infection rates with COVID. My entire family is vax, max, every single one got COVID. Yeah, so what? I mean, this is just reasoning from anecdote. Either COVID, reduces, COVID vaccines reduce the intensity of COVID, reduce death from COVID, reduce hospitalization from COVID, or it, it doesn't. And so it's just a matter of the... The studies. Yeah, the, the deep state supports this channel. Absolutely. Vaccines never promise immunity, right? Uh, vaccine efficacy lasts about eight weeks, says the, the chat. Well, there's some efficacy at reducing the severity of, of COVID and reducing the number of people who uh, even catch COVID and die from COVID. I think the evidence is, is pretty clear that uh, vaccines that are approved by the United States and other first world governments are overwhelmingly safe and are more effective than doing nothing. But I'm not an expert enough on vaccines, so I'm not going to, I'm not going to belabor that, that point. I, I just simply don't know enough. But the, the Duran's absolutely right. Thinking about, you know, how our, our leaders for the sake of their own prestige and political prospects have subsidized this war in Ukraine. And wouldn't you know it, just as I go to play that link, uh, the player player crashes. All right, a little bit of a discursion here by Chris Cavanaugh and Matt Brown on their favorite form of comedy. Well, 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 yeah, I get it. I get it, I get it, I get it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, here we have British comedy. Um, I think so. it's my favorite brand of comedy. It's good. Yeah. Oh, American comedy. American comedy, like maybe 15, 20 years ago, it was fashionable in my circles here in Australia. But American, American comedy. comedy. Kind of sucked a bit. I mean, it's maybe Seinfeld. This is, this is what we used to say to each other. Well, Seinfeld was not ten years ago. <laughs> no, no. I, said, I said fifteen, like a while ago. But I was young. Okay. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Just look at it. How long ago that was? It was, it was a long time ago. It was a while and ago. How wrong we were. How wrong we were. American oh, comedy Renaissance. Yeah, a lot of people, including a lot of Americans, just have absolute contempt for America and for American culture and American comedy. And there's a lot of great American TV. There's a lot of great American culture. There are a lot of great things about America. Just as there are great things about Britain and England and France and Denmark and Australia and New Zealand and Japan as well. But uh, 
I mean, Richard Spencer just has this knee-jerk contempt for, you know, all things American. But uh, America makes some, you know, pretty good comedy. Yeah. Sorry, David, um, like, there's, a, there's, a, like, read that reason. There's so much edgy, weird stuff, like, that I think you should leave. Guys, oh, that's good. Yeah, that guy's good. They're pretty good. You know, like, Even it's, uh, Dave Chappelle yeah. and all that were good. They're a little bit long the two. I mean, a little bit long the two. They're pretty, that's almost like watching a Joe Rogan special night. But, uh, uh, but still, stand up as good and things. These used to be the stereotype that American, amongst foreigners, foreign speaking, sorry, English speaking foreigners, that American comedy was kind of broad and obvious and whatever, at least, know, at least in my circles. Yeah, I guess yeah. so. Like, like, friends. Yeah, that's a really common critique, uh, particularly among Australians and Europeans, that uh, American comedy is just broad and stupid. But then again, England had Benny Hill, so who, he just did anyone watch Benny Hill? I never. I don't, I don't, never nobody, nobody treated that as no. That, that's such a, but um, yeah. No, anyway, we're totally wrong. But there you go, America, cultural powerhouse. That's my idea. Yeah. Uh, you come to the gurus, and instead you learn a lot about <laughs> British comedy. Uh, when I was a child, the gurus on Benny Hill gave me tingles. That is Chris Vanos saying that, not me. I was not mm -hmm. young enough to experience Benny Hill. Euro trash. Well, what, what, Chris, Chris, you must, you must, you're, you're my age, aren't you? Or close, thereabouts. You must have watched the goodies. The goodies had uh, when I was a kid. There was no sense. They didn't have censorship. Yeah, okay, we're very close. Um. The goodies, like they didn't have, and Monkey Magic, Monkey Magic, Bernie Sangle, that they translated out of Chris. Yeah, like, I know. They didn't really have censorship for kids, so they, we, little kids got to, you know, there were, was titillating things during children's television. Hours. Well, yeah, I, I, live changed. In, I live in Japan, Matt. There are plenty of titillating things on children's uh, programs. The, 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 they're, still, they're still holding on to that. To the, oh, yes, they are. they are. It's quite amusing. The, the manga covers that my son, 10 year old son, has are a sight to behold. But, you know, is it unhealthy for him to be exposed to the existence of in human side press? I don't know. I don't know. I, I merely exist in the culture. I don't judge it. I'm an anthropologist. I'm <laughs> You're an anthropologist, that's right. He's an anthropologist. He just exists in the culture. He doesn't doesn't judge it. All right, a uh, little bit more from decoding the gurus. With it, that you need to be sort of willing to at least pay lip service to a bunch of a bunch of stuff, which is kind of right on. And um, that's no problem for me personally. Talking about diversity and inclusion statements. <laughs> there are a few people who, who get on their high horse about it. So it's like I don't know. I mean, yeah. You're gonna push back that you have to pay lip service to anything because I guess you know, like I did the I statement from you guys, or say Yol, or the I'm sorry, uh, Mirti and the I'm sorry, the man's name I forgot on the last Patreon upload, but. Uh... I mean, also, a decent DI thing would just be talking about your actual podcast and the fact that you know, you're spreading this academic knowledge to those people who are not going to be a cavalry. And but you are right that you know on some level that is still just you needing to learn how to write to promote yourself, which is a big part of academia and grant writing in general. But also, it's a part of you know another thing that those statements are meant to do. And again, so Chris Cavanaugh and Matt Brown they they met up on on Twitter because they both was somewhat heterodox while loathing the intellectual dark web. So they're, they're basically center-left liberals who both tire of liberal-left hypocrisy, but also have disdain for the low IQ intellectual dark web. This is kind of just another hoop to jump through on some level, is the fact that you're meant to try to look at your past and align it with like the overall mission statement of the university, things like that. However, it's also important to note that part of your job as a professor is to do that at the national level when you're writing grants or international level. Like you need to look at the organizations like actual mission statement, what, you know, for like the national things in America that fund research, you need to look at, you know, this year, what are they really trying to hype up? And so on some level, needing to go to the school's website and look up all those things is selecting for someone who's going to be able to write the mm. grants. Uh, yeah. I, guess, I mean, yeah, uh, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. So a lot of these tests, whether diversity and inclusion statements, they're really just tests. Are you willing to follow directions? Are you willing not to be a dick and to get along with people, all right? If you're going to get along with people, you're going to have to go along with a lot of crap, all right? N not everyone else is going to see things the way you do. Yeah, I, I think you're right. I think, I think it does perform this function. And I've kind of said this before, which is I, th I think 
and this isn't really a dig it's more just like a sociological observation that it is like a it is like back in the victorian era where they would sound they would you know people that wanted to become part of the british civil service and and get into that that the, the sort of rungs of power would get sounded out did they go to the right clubs and did they have the right opinions and whatever and i'm i'm not that sounds more pejorative than i mean it to be but i think there is some of that right so in, in a university um like if you want to become a dean or a deputy vice chancellor or whatever um a lot of it is like our universities are corporations just like berkeley i assume and frankly they are they are primarily concerned with not having scandals not mm -hmm. not having people that are going to become a massive problem and part of it is actually demonstrating that you're not going that you're not a weirdo and you're not going to like swim against the stream and call right this is like most jobs the number one reason people get fired is they become seen as a liability they're just weird, off-putting, that uh, they make other people uncomfortable, that they're not willing to you know, play nicely with others. Cause massive problems. And I think, um, I think that's just a, that's not a political observation. That's just a, like a sociological observation. And, and I, think a, I think a lot of those statements can, yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry. I meant to look at I was saying any group of humans would do that. Yeah. 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 I, I think that the part where everyone can clasp hands is over the fact that university system is like pretty cynical and business orientated and like exploitative of uh, like, you know, postdoctoral labor. And right. So businesses, right, employers want you to show that you're willing to play nicely with others, right? You're willing to get along, not be too weird and be willing to submerge your own opinions and your own preferences to play nicely with the group. A little bit more from this show, Decoding the Gurus. Really seems to, every time he has a big appearance, like on Rogan or whatever, he has to tear up at some point. He's just talking about Jordan Peterson. It's like, he's not very well. He's a very, he's a very odd man, like in so many respects. And yeah, it's a, yeah, I think he's got progressively stranger, but he's, he's definitely now, if somebody regards him as his role, the role model now, and they're still watching what he's doing, it kind of like, I don't know that there's that much hope left. Mm. But I think this whole kind of like sort of rabbit going down a rabbit hole thing that sounds really like um, stupid from the outside. But when you're, I, I sort of realized that as I was kind of, so what happened was that I, I lost my job because of COVID lockdowns. Um, mm. Which I think is people don't really, if it's not affected you, you don't, doesn't sort of. Um... Right. If If your life was, you know, severely diminished, uh, if you lost your, your job, I mean, through COVID lockdowns, there are all sorts of incentives for, for why you'd be much more likely to believe in uh, conspiracy theories. You don't sort of realize how big a thing it is. So it's kind of that sort of being vulnerable, being stuck in this situation and not knowing what's going to happen next makes you more skeptical about um, like what's going on, who's got your best interests at heart and blah, blah, blah. Um, but I mean, I was kind of lucky enough that I got a new job fairly fairly quickly after that. And so I kind of I've gradually, gradually start to move away from this kind of content. But I think what the what decoding the gurus is, is different from the stuff that I would kind of listen to before was more, you know, like majority report. Apart from uh. being like so, so, so focused on um, American politics is that it's just it just takes piss out of people. And yeah. so and if and if there's one area which you think, OK, maybe I agree with them about, you know, American you know, medical insurance or guns or whatever, you agree with them, but then they say something really exaggerated about, like, transgenderism or about, like, um, I don't know, vaccine, forcing people to get vaccines or whatever. Then you kind of, 
can't really fully subscribe to it because you feel like they're they're so and especially with the majority report now I can't I can't watch them because they're just they don't give people the benefit of the doubt and they're really vitriolic so I think mm. it's really much more useful to really look at what are these people actually saying and what is true and what is um, just complete exaggeration so. it, that, I, I think yeah you go ahead Matt you've been silent <laughs> <laughs> I was just gonna say it's true, isn't it? Like, like if if you've lost your job as a result of the COVID lockdowns, and a lot of people did, um, and you know, it, it hits differently than if you're someone that's just oh, I'm working from home now for yeah. a little while. Right. I mean, COVID didn't didn't affect didn't negatively affect my life. Like, I enjoyed the opportunity to just read more, and I mean, I I'm on easy street compared to tens of millions of people who intensely suffered from the lockdowns. So, of course, being open to the lockdowns were a good idea, as I am open to, to that. You know, I'm not committed to it, but from the available evidence, it seems to me that in general, the, the lockdowns at certain times were, were a good idea. But I didn't suffer from the COVID lockdowns. And, um, and I was one of the lucky ones. I could just work from home and it was no big deal. I basically experienced no impact from it whatsoever. But I could hear secondhand from heaps of people who were like really adversely affected by it. And it takes, it's true what you say, it takes actually a leap of a leap of empathy to go, okay, that's not happening to me. But I can imagine that if that was me, then that would be quite bad. And you know, when people are in difficult situations, that's when you're more receptive to people going, well, you know, you know, if, if there's someone saying, look, this is all a crock of shit, this was all totally unfair, this shouldn't have happened to you, you know, then that's obviously a message that's gonna, that, that, that's gonna appeal. Yeah. So, um, yeah. You're just in, in yeah, that short term, you're like, you don't know where the, you know, where, where's your salary going to come from? Where are you going to pay the bills? You know? Right. The, these are three PhDs speaking, all right? These are three academics, all right? People who, you know, generally center left. But this woman saying, due to the devastation of COVID lockdown, she started to entertain many of the conspiracy theories on the right. Not thinking about, like, what's the best policy for, oh, yeah, maybe I don't need to buy food because, um, you know, to stop some people getting infected with the virus, you know. Those things happen all the time. Um, you have to make those kind of sacrifices. But it just feels like, you know, why, why, you know, why me? <laughs> it sounds really I, good. No, I, I, I think that's very understandable and like a, you know, a, a kind of intuitive and reasonable reaction to that situation. And I, I think that like uh, in the positive aspects, the, the some of the people that we cover do express, you know, like genuine sympathy for people in those. And, um, and I think people notice that. But on the other hand is like i i also see a cynical exploitation of of people who are general so yeah some people think i i hate my viewers and that i lack uh, empathy and sympathy for the sufferings that they endured during covid and perhaps i need to enlarge my heart and uh, be be a better man and you know develop my my empathy but yeah it's uh, it's easy to take advantage of people's suffering to you know try to sell them you know, a whole bunch of nonsense. All right. Uh, we've sent, you know, the USS Eisenhower into the Mediterranean. We've sent all sorts of American armed forces into the Middle East. You know, we've got bases in Syria, right? Syria is a nation state that does not want us to have bases, military bases in their country. But do we give a damn about that? No, the United States has bases all over the Middle East. That's why so many American bases in the Middle East are getting hit by Iranian-based proxies, and Iranian-based proxies are not identical with Iran, right? Iranian-based Iranian proxies have agency, right? They can make decisions on their own. They can do things that uh, 
Iran would not necessarily support, but the more military forces the United States puts into the Middle East, the more likely it is perhaps that there's some kind of conflagration, right? Uh, on the other hand, you could argue having all these you know, aircraft carriers and nuclear-powered submarines that will intimidate Iran and its proxies from doing anything really naughty. On the other hand, you're increasing the chances that something awful happens. This is from the Duran. All right, Alexander, let's talk about the war in, uh, in Israel and Gaza. And uh, I guess we could talk about the, the Eisenhower entering the, the Gulf, uh, what, what's going on there. And, of course, we have a whole lot of diplomacy um, happening uh, in the Middle East. Uh, Blinken was in, uh, in Israel. And my general sense of, of this is, is pretty much what we've been saying for the past two, three weeks. Uh, we've been pretty, pretty uh, consistent in saying this, which is that uh, the, the Biden White House... Um, they've made a, a mess of, of the policy in Israel. Netanyahu has made a mess of things. Um, and uh, it seems like the Biden White House is trying to figure out a way to, to exit this. But, but Right. I, I'm as rabid a Zionist as you can get, but I think it's absolutely insane the United States so identified itself with Israel in this conflict. Everything that Israel does, okay, everything that Israel does the rest of the world, particularly the Arab Islamic world, interprets Israel as essentially co-equal, a part of an extension of the United States. And we didn't have to do this. It was insane that Joe Biden flew to Israel and embraced Bibi Netanyahu, right? It would have been much wiser for the United States to just say nothing, right? And as, as much as possible, you know, stay out of this conflict that does not involve vital American interests. All right, we could very well get hit with one, two, three, four, five equivalent attacks to 9-11 because of our unnecessary intervention, uh, very showily, very dramatically, very theatrically, you know, flying to Israel to embrace Bibi Netanyahu. Right? I, I want Israel to be strong and to vanquish its enemies, but it was insane for America's leaders to just throw themselves you know, into the arms of Israel and essentially announce to the world that, uh, you know, Israel and America are essentially acting as one, right? That's going to reap a whirlwind, which will not be good for America or, or for Israel. There are other forces involved, which perhaps is, are, are not so keen on exiting. And maybe one of those forces is Netanyahu himself, the man. But um, the more this, this war continues, the worse it gets for Israel and the United States. After me, I mean, for Gaza, it's, it's, it's a horrific tragedy. But um, this, is, this is not going the way the U.S. and, and Israel no. probably thought it would go. No, and can I just say, I mean, you know, we've, have, you know, it's not been an easy conflict to cover, but I think the results that we see at the moment, where we are at this moment, this particular point in time, if you go back and look at all our programmes right from the start of this affair, this particular twist in the, in the fighting, you can see that we were saying that it would probably arrive at this point, provided there wasn't that greater escalation across the Middle East, which is a real potential possibility, that if it was just confined to, to Gaza, we would find... Right. The United States is now, under the Biden administration, you know, desperately trying to walk back their embrace of Bibi Netanyahu and Israel and Israel's invasion of Gaza. But it's a, it's a done deal. Right? America put itself on train tracks, right? And they're going down the line here as Israel tries to root out Hamas in, in Gaza and in the process inevitably kills thousands upon thousands of civilians and this is going to blow back on America, and it's all entirely unnecessary, right? The United States did not have to side so publicly with, with Israel. find ourselves in this particular situation where there is this kind of ceasefire. It's a very odd and complicated ceasefire. You can sense that some people in Israel want to end it and to resume the fighting. The Biden administration has suffered enormous political damage, um, both within the United States. There's even, there was even a meeting in which Biden apparently apologized. 
And it was an own goal. It was completely unnecessary, just like we didn't have to send arms to Ukraine, right? By arming Ukraine. That's why Donald Trump got impeached in 2019, because he wasn't following through on, on congressional legislation that we must go arm Ukraine. The more we arm Ukraine, the more we incentivize Putin to go in and wreck it, right? We didn't have to get so deeply involved in Ukraine. Ukraine has nothing to do with America's vital strategic interests. Uh, Gaza, Hamas, uh, the, the Middle East conflict doesn't have much to do with America's vital strategic interests, but we stuck you know, our big wet dick in there and it may very well get cut off. And that's not going to feel very good. Apologize to uh, Muslims, to American Muslims, for um, appearing to question the figures of the numbers of people killed in Palestine, in, in Gaza, which is an astonishing thing to happen, by the way. But you can see that they are suffering political damage in the United States, and they have seen their whole political position in the Middle East massively damaged as well. I mean, they flirted, well, they didn't flirt, they split back at the beginning these ideas of people being relocated from Gaza into Sinai, Right. Now, Saudi Arabia, Jordan, Egypt, they may very well loathe Hamas as much or more than Israel. But to publicly sign on with, you know, Israel invading uh, Gaza to eradicate Hamas, it was just an own goal, just completely unnecessary, just a massive, massive blunder. The Arab states said absolutely not. <laughs> They've now had to accept that. They, we've had a whole series of conversations between Biden and um, Arab leaders, al-Sisi especially, the Egyptian leader, accepting that that's not going to happen. And we see the ceasefire. And you get every sense that the administration basically wants to see the ceasefire continue because it's getting them, it's, it's at least limiting the political damage. And there are reports that Egypt and Saudi Arabia are now working very hard together. And they're obviously both now going to be BRICS states before long. And they're working very hard to get this ceasefire confirmed by Security Council resolution. So all of that is now playing out very much as we sort of expected but in some ways an even more interesting development yeah and the chat notes russia is going to annex at least half of ukraine correct right they have sacrificed too much they do not trust the promises their opponents for very good reason because europe and america was consistently lying and deceiving and manipulating and abusing russia particularly when russia was weak and and so while you could have had a you could have forestalled the, the invasion in the first place, and you could have very quickly reached a, a peace deal. Now you've got tens upon thousands, tens of tens of tens and tens of thousands of, of dead Ukrainians for, for no good reason. And I'm, you know, I don't want to downplay the significance of what's going on in Gaza because it is the epicenter of this. But for me personally, perhaps I should say, a more interesting development is tracking the movements of the USS Eisenhower. It's a very powerful carrier. The United States has deployed two carrier task forces to the Middle East. It's deployed. And it, it may very well be that the U.S. is going to use the Israel-Hamas conflict as a pretext to start bombing the heck out of Iran. Missiles in the Middle East. It's provided for deployed aircraft in the Middle East. Those decisions all were taken at the start of October. They are all consistent. And, I, you know, we said this before, and I'm going to repeat this again. They are all consistent with plans for a massive strike on Iran. And that was clearly where events were going in early October or would have gone had the demands of the neocons within the administration been heeded. And it's clear that those people in the first weeks were very, very much in the ascendancy. And the Eisenhower is now in the Persian Gulf and it's locating precisely in the area where it would be. We would expect to see it if there was a plan to launch big airstrikes against Iran. Now, as I said, I think this is probably the product of decisions made in October. But the fact that it is there at all, the fact that it is backed by this 
enormously powerful nuclear submarine. So the number one story on Fox News all day is that certain U.S. House representatives did not sufficiently condemn sexual violence committed by Hamas on October 7th. I mean, really, is this the most important thing for Americans to be concerned with? Bizarre. It's 150 Tomahawk cruise missiles. Was- right, right. We're on the verge of World War Three in Ukraine, over Taiwan, in the Middle East. And the focus of Fox News today is, you know, dominantly did these various members of, uh, is it the squad or, you know, these various left-wing uh, Democrats, did they sufficiently condemn Hamas's, you know, sexual violence on October 7? ...sense of what was originally planned and of how dangerous the situation in October actually was. It's a combination of extremely skillful diplomacy by the Muslim states, the Arab states in particular, Egypt, Saudi Arabia, Jordan, they played perhaps the key role. And of course, the BRIC states, the Chinese and the Russians, together with protests in the United States. But more especially, I think, the diplomacy, which has brought us from that brink, brought us back from that brink. Yeah. What, what risk do you think there is that uh, this is not um, a result of decisions made in October where the Eisenhower is located? And perhaps there still is that that impulse to, to launch a strike uh, towards Iran. I'm confident that the decisions were made in October, but bear in mind something. The fact that the Eisenhower is dying in the Persian Gulf shows that no one up to this point has countermanded those orders. I mean, it's been positioned in the Persian Gulf. It's ready for a strike against Iran. The reason it's, the strike against Iran isn't happening is because nobody's yet given the order that it should happen. The danger always is, in this kind of situation, that somebody will at some point push and demand that the order be given. And that tells us that the situation still despite the fact that, you know, there's all these signs that some people are trying to dampen. The- and on Fox News, every day they're just beating the war drums for war against Iran directly. Uh, throughout the, the neoconservative news media, just beating the war drums for an unnecessary war with, with Iran, which would, would blow back in devastating ways for Americans, which Iran doesn't want, right? Iranian proxies have agency, all right? It would be blamed on Iranian proxies, but these proxies may very well be acting not at the behest of Iran, but in their own interests, right? I don't think Iran signed off on the Hamas attack on Israel on October 7, right? Because it's not in Iran's interest and it was not part of the trajectory that Iran was on. The situation to bring it back under control, to bring the Gaza situation back under control, to accept that the objectives that Netanyahu, with Biden's backing, uh, set out right at the start, you know, going into Gaza, obliterating Hamas entirely, changing things, the entire situation there completely. Even though those plans, for the moment, have not have been abandoned, there's still not been a political decision, a full political decision, to call off the idea of a strike against Iran. So the Eisenhower has been allowed to steam all the way to the Persian Gulf, and it is there, and nobody so far, nobody yet, has made the order to pull it back. And that's incredibly dangerous. It tells you that that argument in the White House, in the administration, is still ongoing. There are still uh, tensions and that there are still people within the administration who still hanker for that strike on Iran. So, you know, this is this crisis is far from over. And I think you know, at the moment, the trajectory is towards some kind of stabilization. But people should not um, should not um, assume that it is over yet. Uh, I just wanted to say yesterday um, we did on the Duran. A program. It's not yet, I think, been published with uh, uh, Colonel, Wil- Colonel Lawrence Wilkerson. Um, it, it, it's been published. It's been published. OK. But anyway, if people see it, I mean, he, he talks about the neocons that he had to deal with within the U.S. government. And he said that, you know, that at one point they were planning seven wars. But actually, 
planning seven wars and he was in the, the Pentagon and he was listening to people, you know, in all seriousness, planning seven wars, one after the other. And he also described um, what it was actually like dealing with these people, you know, the um, vociferous, angry way that they behave, the rudeness and the arrogance that they behave. And those people are still there. I mean, he had to deal with them before, but, you know, they're still there. He had comments to make about Victoria Nuland, who he clearly knows. So he knows, he knows President Biden himself, by the way. He mentioned him. So you could see that this group is still there. You see how militant and dangerous they are. And all their weapons are in place. And they are still uncomfortably close to the trigger. So this crisis is... Right. So if you want to feel important, what's going to make you feel more important than, say, bombing Iran? Getting involved in all sorts of drama overseas. Like, I, I like drama, all right? And when I'm not spiritually calibrated, when I'm not psychologically fit, I, I get myself into unnecessary drama. I over-disclose. I seek, you know, inappropriate relationships with inappropriate people at inappropriate places. All right, I, right, I, I refuse to just uh, keep my head down and you know pursue my my healthy objectives. Instead, you know, I like to get 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 lost in unnecessary drama. If you're working in U.S. foreign policy, all right, you're going to get more of a feeling of importance from intervening overseas through hastening wars or by encouraging Americans to step back from anything that's not in their vital strategic interest. Right. Unfortunately, incentives are aligned so that people do all sorts of things such as cause wars, get into wars that uh, give them a tremendous feeling of importance, but are absolutely fatal for the nation state that they supposedly represent. Far from over. Yeah, it's a very, very dangerous situation. You know, the neocons, they're, they're not going to let it go so easily because this is as close as they've gotten, at least from what I can remember, to, to getting one of the most coveted wars they've, uh, they've, they've been uh, trying for, which is a war with Iran. I mean... The neocons, they have been wanting a war with Iran forever, it seems, and they're so close to getting it. So I don't think they're going to let this go too easily. I imagine there's a lot of, uh, a lot of debate and discussion in the White House um, to try and get something uh, going towards, uh, towards Iran. But um, what kind of... Uh, what... And you think that Joe Biden isn't looking at the polls right now? The, 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 the Democrats signed on with the Afghan and Iraq invasions in 2001, 2003, because they saw how successful the first... Gulf War had been in 1991 and how damaging that had been to Democratic prospects politically. So they, they signed on to these new wars, hoping that uh, it would be good for them politically. Joe Biden is struggling in the polls, and he thinks by staking out some you know bold, strong stance overseas, such as supporting Ukraine, supporting Taiwan, and possibly going to war with Iran, that the, the country will, will finally rally around him. They don't appreciate Biden's economics. They don't appreciate Biden running for re-election. They don't particularly care for Biden in any way, shape, or form. He is probably considering maybe they'll like me if I start bum, 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 bombing Iran. What kind of a role do you think the, the media, the optics, the information uh, war played in, uh, in uh, Israel and getting to, to the Biden White House to effectively uh, say, you know, we're, we, we got to find an off-ramp to this? It, uh, it, because it, it seems like the, the, the images, the videos, the, 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 the horrors that the entire world is, is seeing in, in Gaza, it seems like this is this has been one of the, the driving forces to, to get the Biden White House to to um, to seek some sort of prolonged ceasefire and eventually some sort of stabilization. Uh, Biden White House that is consumed with its uh, with uh, with optics and with uh, the media's perception of of the administration. I mean, this is a top priority for them and, and all of these horrific images and even the labeling of Biden genocide Joe that they call him. I mean, this yeah. is 
this has been uh, a driving factor in, in getting to, to some sort of de-escalation. Absolutely. It's very like, you know, what happened to LBJ, Lyndon Johnson, um, in the last, uh, you know, just before he had to pull out, you know, there were, uh, uh, the, the protesters used to go and chant all kinds of things about Lyndon Johnson, you know, and uh, if you compare the chants of that time with the chants that are being made about Biden now, you can see the similarities. They're very, the language and the accusations are very, very similar. And what happened, what's happened is the justice LBJ in the 60s lost control of the media, um, lost control of the narrative. Remember, these people are obsessed with narratives. He lost it in the 60s. And uh, Biden and his team lost it this time because the, the fundamental problem, the thing they didn't take into account was, firstly, that a lot more of the world cares about what goes on in Gaza and the Palestinian territories. The Muslim world cares. Uh, you can't control it in the way that you can control so many other things. And I think they also badly misjudged some of the sentiments amongst some of the grassroots in the um, Democratic Party. And that eventually had an effect on the media in the United States as well. And that had a snowball effect. And it, it, it got out of control and it put the entire administration on the defensive. And it's played a decisive role because for this administration, more than any other in the history of the United States, well, perhaps the Obama administration was similar, but media control is everything. <laughs> that is what they're obsessed with. Obama, to a certain extent, but a great extent was. This lot are obsessed with it even more. You know, they're uh, entirely postmodernists. I mean, they believe that, you know, the narrative... If you can get the narrative accepted, it becomes the truth. <laughs> and uh, Elliot Blatt says in the chats, I've seen the elites are all about resigned to inevitable Trump victory. I don't think they're at all resigned. They're doing everything they can to stop it. The ironic thing is that the more they try to do to stop the Trump victory, probably the more they hasten it, just as the more vitriolic Trump and his supporters became during his time in office, the less support that they got from the American public. So both Trump and his supporters and Trump and his opponents have vastly overstepped. The question is, you know, which side has overstepped more? Um, the fact that the narrative was going in the wrong direction and uh, uh, you know, basically hold them. I mean, they, they were shot under the waterline. They couldn't really uh, survive this. And that is why they changed. But of course, if we go back to the neocons, first of all, they're less bothered about that kind of narrative than uh, the Biden team are. The neocons aren't into the business so much of winning elections because they have a presence in both parties. They've got Nikki Haley now <laughs> rising and all that. Right. Think of all the press that Nikki Haley is getting, getting as a possible alternative to Donald Trump. She's getting, you know, uh, she's getting praised all through the news media. Her, her chances are frequently getting vastly exaggerated. You know, right now I see absolutely no chance that she has for overtaking Trump, but she can tap essentially unlimited amounts of money, which just kind of goes to show you, you can't buy an election, right? Uh, Nikki Haley could spend a trillion dollars and still not win the Republican nomination from where I stand, just like you could drop a ton of high quality cocaine in front of me and I would not be tempted to indulge in it, all right? We weren't born yesterday, all right? We did not evolve to be gullible. Americans in general, Republicans in particular, are not so gullible as to support Nikki Haley and her neocon agenda. So, uh, um, so that's not what their concern is. And besides, if they're worried that the administration is going to lose the election uh, next year and that a new president, say Donald Trump, is going to come in and bring you know, the whole thing to a stop, well, given that they're so close to getting that war, that is going to make them even more determined to try to get their war now rather than have it taken from them possibly forever. So you know, you've got to always remember that there are these uh, people there and they are extremely difficult to uh, um, control and contend. Colonel Wilkinson said how difficult to control they actually are and how impossible to argue with they actually are. And they will be running a market at the moment.
And what makes neocons so formidable is that they're incredibly cohesive and there's a lot of money to subsidize them, all right? There are all sorts of think tanks and journals that will publish them, all right? They, they have friends, they have community, they count for nothing in terms of votes, but they're a tiny group who's cohesive and highly funded and dedicated to unnecessary American intervention overseas, mainly in the guise of supporting Israel. There'll be furious rounds going on in the, um, you know, in the executive, in, in, in the West Wing, in the National Security Council, in the Pentagon, in the State Department. You can imagine the anger and the fury and stamping of feet and the banging on desks that's probably happening and the bad language that is being used also. Yeah. Me media control is baked in the cake with the Biden White House. It's, it's baked into the man himself. <laughs> you know what I mean? It, it starts with him, the, the, the obsession with controlling uh, the media and the narrative. So it's no surprise that... Uh, that they're so obsessed with with the media narrative um, when it comes to, to this war as well, and it's backfired in a in a big big way. They misjudged everything uh, with regards to, to this war. They probably thought that it was going to go along the lines of uh, of Project Ukraine, where in the beginning, and even to a certain extent even today, uh, the Biden White House does have a pretty good um, handle on on the media narrative. It's starting to crumble now, but we're two years into into the conflict in Ukraine. So they probably thought that what they did in Ukraine, all the all the fake news, siege of Kiev, ghost of Kiev, all that stuff, that they could probably do the same thing in uh, in Gaza, but. It didn't work out. I wonder why. I wonder well, what was different about, about Gaza that's, well, that wasn't there in the, in the first year, say, of, of Project Ukraine. Two things. Uh, two things. The first is, um, as I said, the fact that an awful lot more people care about this war than I, I have to say this care about Ukraine. I mean, the, the last is a, not an easy thing to acknowledge because it is a war. And, you know, many, many, many more people have died in Ukraine than in Gaza. And, you know, just to say that. But nonetheless, the military, military people, not, not civilian, not civilian. Okay, we'll come to that. Civilians yeah. is the yeah, just to clarify, yeah. You're talking about the totality of the number of people. It is a much bigger conflict, but people aren't personally and emotionally invested in it in the same, to the same degree. That's one. But the other thing, and this is, comes straight to the point you just made, is the way in which this operation was conducted. The uh, uh, enormous amount of bombing. And, you know, I read pieces in, I think it was the Financial Times, which talked about indiscriminate bombing, the hundreds of buildings destroyed, the pictures of people being killed, the people, pictures of children, and you know, all of that. There was just far too much of that coming over far too short a time. One thing about in Argentina that I... Okay, another good uh, episode of the Duran was when they had uh, Robert Barnes on about uh, a week ago, talking about the situation in Argentina. President's talking about not having people meet with him or something. It's like, mm -hmm. I, I just saw the headline, so I didn't see anything beyond that. But I think he fits within a long-standing tradition in Latin American politics and represents the continued failure of the professional managerial class. Right. This is attorney Robert Barnes, who frequently shows up on Alex Jones's channel. He sounds great. When, when, you, when I listen to him, I feel good. But uh, upon examination, many of his points fall apart. But I particularly like how he serves as a foil here to the main intellectual behind the Duran, Alexander Makuris. Across the, uh, across the globe. And it'll be interesting to see how he's able to experiment with public policy in ways that might count, challenge and counter the uh, institutional control of central bankers. So I'm all in favor of that. I, I welcome this election. Just for nothing else, for pure entertainment value. Yeah, I mean, lots of interesting things. Can I just clarify a few points? I mean, the thing about Peron, because Peron's about one thing about in Argentina that I do know about, because I should say lots of Greek people emigrated to Argentina, including some members of my family way back in the 19th century. They, we've lost long since lost touch with them, but they, they were familiar with Peron. Peron was a very strange thing. He was both populist left and populist right at one and the same time. He was able to look in all kinds of directions simultaneously. And one of the things people don't know is this. Yes, he did. He was a fan of Mussolini. He did allow all sorts of interesting people from Central Europe to come to Argentina after the war. He worked with the Vatican to get the passports. They ended up there. And, you know, we've all heard about that. And we all know about it. what most people don't know about is that he was also somebody who worked. And this Peron was personally very interested in. He was very keen to get Jewish people to Argentina. 
during the 1930s and 40s. And he made Argentina a major refuge for large numbers of people. Jewish. Right. You hear about Argentina like welcoming Nazis. But what you don't hear is that they also welcomed a large number of Jews. People from Europe, they went to Argentina at that time. That isn't widely known, but it was one of the great places that people were able to escape to. And he welcomed them and he made it possible for them to come. And Argentine diplomatic missions played a role in facilitating that. So that's just one thing to say. The second thing about Perón is a very complicated domestic policy, very complicated foreign policy. It was a time, it was also his time, was when Argentina peaked. It was lending money to France. It was richer at that time than most of um, Europe was. It was Right. In the 1880s, Argentina and Australia had the, I, I recall, the, the highest you know, per capita wealth in the world. It, it was comparable in some ways in terms of its affluence to um, North, parts of North America. Now, that was not because of Peron. Argentina had already becoming, been becoming an increasingly prosperous country throughout, you know, before Peron became leader. But it sort of peaked under Peron. Problems really began after he was overthrown. And he came to power through a coup. He was overthrown as a result of a military coup. And he went into exile. And then he eventually did return for a short time as president of Argentina in the 1970s. And one of the things people discovered that to their surprise is that the Peronist party had moved significantly to the left whilst he was himself in exile, I think in Spain mostly. And of course, what they discovered when he came back was that without having a very clear strategy or policy, he himself was actually quite far to the right. So there was already this tension within Peronism, which was, was, visi was visible at that time. And of course, he then he died in office and his wife, Isabella, tried to take over and she made an even bigger mess. And then, well, made a huge mess. And then the Talking about uh, Evita, Evita Perón. Military stepped in and that was a very brutal dictatorship. And then the military was overthrown in the early 80s, or rather fell in the early 80s at the time of the Falklands War. And we've had endless civilian governments since then, and none has worked. And this is, as I said, this is where my points with Robert's points basically converge. You have a completely broken political system, a completely broken bureaucratic system. Um, the governmental systems that have been created have never really worked at any point since. And it's unsurprising that people want to try something new. Two last points, two important last points. One, Argentina completely cut off from Europe. Very interesting place. I am, as is well known, something of a film buff. What isn't widely known was until about 1960, Metropolis, the famous film by Fritz Lang. Okay, I'll skip the, the film, film bits. Let's get a little bit of uh, Jean-Francois Garapi from his December 2nd show. Because of progressive empathy. Well, it's all good. It's all good to understand uh, the problem of immigration and bringing in people who hate your country. But the problem is um, Yad Sahad is one of these people who's increasingly disliking our countries. And he's disliking our countries because of the bringing in of an absolute foreign conflict into our nations. A conflict that we shouldn't have had a bit of care for for the last hundred years. It should have never become a question of so much importance what's happening between Israel and Gaza and whatever. But we have imported this conflict in full. And uh, yeah, we, hopefully one day it, uh, it goes away. Hopefully one day the only people who care about Israel-Gaza is people who live in Gaza and people who live in Israel. Uh, as a last news item tonight, because I wanted to do a relatively short show, Dead Star says, Hey Jeff, there's a young British YouTuber going by the name of Stephen J. James. I remember that, uh, that name, Stephen J. James. Uh, he was on the regular chat here. Uh, he says, who I think is on the he is a longtime follower of yours. And I think he is on the precipice of abandoning his old life and jumping ahead headfirst into life as a right-wing commentator. Do you have any advice or encouragement for the future dissident? 
Well, I don't uh, remember exactly Stephen J. James, what he was saying, but I remember the name, seeing him a lot on, uh, on Super Chats and Chats. Uh, you know, there was a guy uh, that was preparing for a modern-day debate, and I spoke to him in private, and he was, uh, he was saying, uh, how do you survive? How do you get a job once, uh, once everyone knows your name and your face? And I was like, uh, no, you don't get it. Uh, there's no having a job. <laughs> Once you go, uh, once you go, public commentary in politics, and especially dissident and uh, opposed. It depends on what you say, right? Keep in mind, right, your family, your friends, your community, your enemies, and what a lawyer might do, and then speak accordingly. All right, you can present your ideas in ways that are more attractive rather than in ways that are more repellent to the Israeli axis. Uh, you're done for the rest of your life. You, you lose a lot of rights, you lose a lot of possibilities, and you certainly won't have a job at a, uh, at a normie place. Yeah, if you say that most of the problems in the world are because of the Jews or because of the, the blacks or because of the gypsies or because of uh, uh, the homosexuals, yeah, that's going to hurt your social and career prospects. But you don't have to speak in such a moronic manner. Place. You may have a job with your uncle who knows you and he gets you into a a position that no one will see you, uh, but you, it will be through friends if you have a job or through contract work where you don't reveal your, your identity. But it's basically finished, this idea that you can use your name and get some work. So I would say that to Stephen J. James. If you do make the jump, be sure that you have plenty of resources in advance, that you have more than you need. Don't be just on the, I need this month's salary to survive. Be on, on the outlook for the future. Be on, I know how I would survive for the next six months or the whole year even if I was to have zero income. That is how you have to think. And Bitcoin is your friend in this case and being clever about your... <laughs> Bitcoin is your friend. Uh, terrible, terrible advice. Uh, better advice is to conduct yourself online in a way that is best suited to your best interests and to the interests of your friends and community and your career prospects. Right? You can say a lot of things online. You just have to use some care in how you say them. Bitcoin investment and trying to sell at the right time and buy at the right time. That will allow you, alongside the, the money that you make in super chats and commentary, that will allow you to, to have long-term sustainability. Uh, so, yeah, I don't have much to say uh, as a... Yeah, don't say anything that you wouldn't want flashed on the, the billboard at Dodger Stadium in front of 55,000 people. Uh, don't say anything on a live stream that you would not want to see uh, accurately reported in the New York Times. Want to play it a little bit more? Oh man, they're saying bloody, bloody uh, podcast player broke. Let me try a different shorter time for um, the Biden White House to be able to control that. And I think what ultimately was decisive in them losing control of the media on this was that the humanitarian agencies and the U.S. Secretariat ultimately rebelled. <laughs> Some of their people, of course, have also been killed in all of this. And, you know, faced with this overwhelming problem in Gaza, they came out and started to speak straightforwardly and openly about what was happening. And that was what caused the whole media control thing to collapse. It was entirely predictable, by the way. I mean, I remember if you go back and watch our early programs, they predicted that something very like this would actually happen. Yeah, the UN secretary. OK, let's get a little bit more from this discussion here with Robert Barnes. Kind of, um, nationally, why he's beating Biden for the first time ever in the modern media polls or beating any Democrat, uh, because they never had him ahead in 2016. They didn't have him within shooting distance of winning. That's why he was such a big underdog when I went over to London and placed all those bets in Dublin on, on uh, Trump. The
Okay, and the chat's saying, look, the truth matters more to some people. Well, you can say the truth, but not say 100% of the truth. You can say the truth and take some care in how you phrase things, right? There's a great deal of truth that you can say publicly and, and not blow up your life, not blow up the lives of people who care about you. The, uh, uh, in, the, in the same way, the uh, 2020 election, uh, they, they never had him close. I mean, the median expected, Biden was expected to win by a bigger margin than Barack Obama won in 2008 mm -hmm. uh, by eight points or more. So the, now every media poll has Trump ahead which means from an electoral college perspective, Trump has an insurmountable lead. He has a lead outside of what some might call the margin of fraud. But where a lot of that comes from in parts of the country, particularly Florida, particularly the Southwest, is the huge inroads he began making in 2020 amongst Latin vote, Latin American, Central American voters, voters of that ancestry. Hispanic voters, as they're typically identified in the United States, doesn't make any sense because most of them don't speak Spanish. But the, you know, that, that's the, uh, and it's the same kind of thing. Like the, the Mexican cowboy image in West Texas easily blends with Trump's uber uh, machismo, New York City style uh, approach. And so you're seeing like the. Yeah, so this is some good commentary, useful commentary, thoughtful and realistic commentary here from Robert Barnes on the Durant. Uh, what's interesting to me is that somebody like Malay, just like the El Salvadoran president, who's been wildly popular, looks at what Trump did successfully and imitates it in ways that other politicians around the world really aren't. I get it in Europe. Europe imagines that Europe's still a snob continent, basically. Uh, you know, the, uh, the, the Trump is too beneath them to, to imitate those kind of tactics and techniques. Uh, but I've been surprised that in places like most of the United States, people haven't looked at what Trump has done and emulated. And you look at Malay, he, he went from 2% in the polls, nobody knew who the guy was, to now the president of a major country in Latin America and in the world, in Argentina, uh, because he, mostly he emulated Trump, over-the-top rhetoric, over-the-top language. Like he did that board with all the different ministers, and he was like, this minister, out, throw him in the trash. This minister, out, throw him in the trash, right? Now that, you could have seen, you could imagine like Berlusconi in Italy doing something like that. Um, Right. In, in Australia, in, in America, in England, in, in France and Germany and Scandinavian countries, uh, Donald Trump is widely despised. But in much of Latin America, Africa, Asia, right, uh, Trump is quite liked. But, you know, tactically or, or uh, in terms of marketing, but not as much elsewhere. And I, I wonder to what degree are those parts of the world? We've seen, you know, Philippines, we've seen parts of Asia, um, whether other parts, maybe Africa uh, and whether ever Europe at any level adopts Trump's style, even if not Trump's policies or Trump's approach, uh, but Trump, the marketing tactics of Trump, the, or is that going to be something that's limited to the Americas? What, what do you think? Well, I think it might. And I can just make one important point, which is that Donald Trump, as a political figure, as president of the United States, was a popular figure in much of the world outside Europe. People get this very wrong about Trump because, of course, perspective about the internet, many people in the United States still get the sense, still behave as if, foreign opinion is European opinion. The European political class didn't like Donald Trump, period. They didn't like anything about him. They found him unpredictable. They didn't like what they sensed his politics were. They didn't like what they sensed his views of them was. And they didn't like him. But that doesn't mean that the rest of the world didn't. Trump was popular and successful in the Far East. He got on well with lots of Far East leaders. Oh, great. The episode couldn't be played. Please, please try again later. Man, oh man. All right, Alexander, let's uh, do a video on the passing away of Henry Kissinger at the age of 100. So uh, I, I guess, you know, you're, you're a historian. You've, I'm sure you followed the, the, the life of... I remember when he went to, okay. um, you know, on an Asian trip, right at the beginning, they were warm to him. They liked him. The Arab leaders liked him. I can easily imagine the African leaders and the Latin American leaders liking him too. And it could translate very well, possibly, conceivably, um, amongst people as well, provided, you know, the sort of media control, which is pervasive around the world, 
breaks through. The more people saw of Donald Trump around the world, I'm not talking about Europe, but elsewhere around the world, the more they warm to him. The more they see of Joe Biden and before that of Barack Obama, the less they like them. And that's the thing that people don't understand. So just say, now, if you're talking about Europe, one country where one political leader did, to some extent, to a certain extent, try and copy Donald Trump and did succeed was Giorgio Maloney in Italy. And I mean, you know, if you look at the Maloney style, um, which a lot of people found populist and un you know, unusual in European terms, um, it did succeed. But I think one of the problems is that increasingly now, a lot of people in Italy and in Europe are starting to think that that was a sham all along and that she borrowed the style, but not the substance and that she promised in Italy more than she's delivered. Now, she's trying to do various things with family-friendly policies, family-friendly tax policies. But of course, she's trying to do that within the straitjacket of the European Union and its fiscal and legal structures. And the two are now increasingly colliding. And we've had this um, decision now by the German Constitutional Court, which has outlawed a budget manoeuvre that the German government, the current German government, tried to carry out. And that's going to make the fiscal landscape in Europe tighter still. And I think a lot of people in Italy were willing to back Maloney in a battle with the European Union. And I think that some of the enthusiasm for her, I mean, they would still vote for her now because they look at the alternatives and they say, what alternatives? But I think some of the enthusiasm, some of the excitement that was there when she was first elected has probably faded away because she has so worked so hard to come across as this loyal EU team player. I mean, there was a story I read about her that she turned up at the first meeting with the EU officials with a cake and she said look I've got this nice cake for you I'm not a bad person I'm on your side and you know as Alex and I can tell can say you give these people an inch if you try to be friends with them they will take you over there is no meeting there is no way you can meet with them you know on sort of equal terms you're either with them 100% or they're against you 100% Right. So there are people that you can make compromises with and you should make compromises with to get along. And then other people are just your implacable enemies and uh, you can still make choices to infuriate them or to diminish their antagonism for you. But uh, important to have clarity, whatever you choose. That will do it for me. I've uh, managed to take the edge off. Going to watch a little football and go to bed. Talk to you later, mate. Cheers.